Amen. Well, good morning, Tri-Cities Church. All right, it's good to be here with all of you and to uh, worship the Lord and to declare together as a church that we give all of ourselves to the Lord. And um, the incredible thing is that when we give ourselves to the Lord, God knows what to do with us, all right? We can give ourselves to so many different things, uh, but only God knows what to do with our life. And so we celebrate that, the fact that the Lord knows what to do with our life, and that when we give our lives to Him, He never lets us go, right? We're safe and secure in Him. Hey, well, um, good morning again, and welcome to Tri-Cities Church. If this is uh, your first time uh, here with us, I do welcome you and glad that you uh, chose to worship with us this morning. Uh, there are carts in the backs of the seats. They will be right in front of you. Uh, if this is your first time here, whatever you just feel comfortable filling out, we just love to know that you're here. Um, love uh, to be able to pray for you. Uh, Tri-Cities Church folks, y'all know the routine. There's a spot for prayers on the back of those carts. Uh, we love for just to hear about what's going on in your life and to join you in prayer. Our staff gets together on Mondays and we spend time in prayer uh, for our church. We, we kind of brainstorm a list of things to pray for, uh, but we love when you give us a list of things uh, that we can be praying for with and for you uh, so that we can see uh, our God um, our God teach us to trust him more through prayer, and our God to actually uh, strengthen our faith as he responds to the prayers of his people, because that's the way God works. Amen? Amen? Hey, well, there's one announcement I have for you. Uh, we've been announcing for the last couple of weeks this summer, we are doing our Summer Wednesdays. There are sign-up forms back at the Next Steps tables. Uh, next Steps table back there in the back. We are uh, doing the Summer Wednesday. It will be a Bible study. We'll have adults upstairs and we'll have uh, uh, children downstairs learning in an age-appropriate environment. And as adults, we're doing something different this year, and I'm really excited about it, is we're all going to be in here together. So uh, we've done uh, classes before where we've broken into two or three classes during our winter session and summer session. Well, this year, we're going to all be in here. We're going to learn together. It may be, it will be interactive. We may even break into groups uh, some and do some things like that. Um, but it will be a Bible study. We will sing some songs even together. Uh, and so we will sing songs together. We will study the scriptures together. And our Study is the names of God. And, and this may, be, you might go, like, why do I need to know God's name? I know God, right? Uh, and sometimes uh, the God that we know, we know him simply as Jesus, right? The, the one who came and lived and died for us to set us free from sin that we might live eternally and become more like him. And that's a good name of God to know, right? Jesus. As long as we know the name Jesus, uh, we are entrusting the name of Jesus. We are secure in his presence and secure for all eternity. But the Bible says, uh, does teach us that we do live in this world and not in a Christian bubble, but we live in this world and we go through the stresses and trials and hardships of this world. And the scriptures teach us, and this is what we see all throughout the Bible, is that the people of God learn to trust in the name of God. And so they knew God by his name, the many names that are in scripture. There's not just one name of God in scripture, but there's many names of God in the Bible. And they trusted in that God, the name of God. They trusted God by his name. And as they trusted God by his name, God came through for them, no matter what trial, no matter what hardship, no matter what struggle they found themselves in. And so we're doing this study about the names of God, not just so we can 
like win Bible trivia somewhere, right? <laughs> That's not our goal, right? We don't want to enter some Bible trivia contest somewhere and just win some Bible trivia because we now know the names of God. But we want to know the God that we've put our hope and trust in so that we can, like the saints of old, the people who came long before us, like the history uh, that is taught in the scriptures of people who walked with the Lord and trusted him by his name, we can trust him by his name as well. And that the generations that come after us will say, you know, my mom, my dad, my grandma, my grandfather trusted God as, as uh, his shepherd. Or, or, or my, um, my grandma trusted God as her peace. Um, and that will inspire generations that are to come as um, they see that God came through as peace, as shepherd, as provider. So uh, sign up for this class. we just love to know how many people are coming uh, for this class. Also, there's a space for you to sign up for uh, meals. If you are planning to join us uh, for the meal, we'll have a meal downstairs. All the details are on the forms back at the Next Steps table. All right, well, this morning we are uh, wrapping up our series. We started this series. We simply call it Too Small to Ignore, and we're wrapping up this series. Hey, next week I just want to give you a glimpse of what's coming. Uh, we're going to be in Ephesians, uh, where if you've ever felt like you were wrestling against some force that wasn't human, right? If, if there's something that's ever happened in your life that made you say, there is um, both a God, but there is a devil, right? There is an enemy of man. If, if that's ever been you, this series is going to explore that. The Bible says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, forces in this dark world. And we're going to look at what it looks like for us to wage spiritual warfare against our greatest enemy, which is not the person next to you, right? Or the person that you live with. Some people, oh boy. Uh, or nor is it your neighbor that keeps getting on your nerves. Or that coworker that you just, you thought about praying that they would lose their job, but y'all too holy for that. Uh, that, not that person, that we wrestle against, uh, uh, not against flesh and blood, uh, but against principalities and powers in this world. And so we're going to explore what that means and what it looks like for us to trust in the power of God's Spirit. Well, let's pray before we get into our message for this morning. God, we do give you thanks this morning that you give us this opportunity to open uh, the Scriptures uh, and to read them and to study them and to see your heart for children. God, we do know that you have a purpose and a plan for all children, for all people. And God, that you call us to, you call us to fight for the lives of all people that they might walk fully into your will for their lives. God, this series has been challenging me, has been challenging our church to step outside of our comfort zones, to step outside of the ways that we've grown accustomed to doing things, and to be your church in our world. God, please continue to challenge us through the scriptures, knowing that our world is made better when we say yes to you. See your son, Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so like I said, we're wrapping up this series, Too Small to Ignore. And really what we've been seeing in this series is that 
God is calling us as adults to step into the lives of children, to invest in the lives of children, because God has a purpose and a plan for all people. We've seen, uh, well, and there's, there's a couple of scriptures there, um, but one is in James chapter 1, verse 27. It's not on the screen. We talked about it the first week in this series where it says, the religion that God considers to be pure and faultless is to look after orphans and widows in their distress, right? So the religion, so it basically it's saying that our religion, if our religion amounts to just gather in spaces like this, right? If religion amounts for us into just reading the scriptures and praying to God, if religion for us uh, just becomes this becoming morally good people, then that religion in God's sight is, is, is worthless and a waste of time. God is actually calling us, and what the Bible says in James 1 verse 27, is to look after the most vulnerable in our society, that God's heart is beating for the most vulnerable in our society, those who are not able to look after themselves. In fact, in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus tells his classic parable. And it's a, um, a parable where he, he talks about uh, people being hungry and thirsty and not having water and food and being sick and in prison and these different things and not having anyone to look after them. Or maybe they did have someone to look after them. But the ones, what Jesus says at the end of that parable is he says um, that the, the, um, the, the ones who did it for the least of these did it to me. So the ones that did look after the hungry, those who did look after the sick, those who did look after those who were in prison and those who were uh, poor and destitute, those who are going through hard times and were the most vulnerable in our society, those who did look after the, looked after the least of these. And that's just kind of an odd phrase that Jesus uses because he's not talking about a hierarchy that exists, right? There's no hierarchy that exists between human beings. He's not saying they're least or somehow lower than. Rather, what he's saying is they're the most vulnerable in our society. And when we care for the most vulnerable, it's not just that we're doing acts of service towards them, but we're actually serving the Lord our God because that's God's heartbeat. The scripture is showing us that that's God's heartbeat, that God's heartbeat beats for the most vulnerable in our society. And what we've seen throughout all of time, even though now we have all kinds of programs and we have uh, 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 all kinds of services that care for the poor and the needy, we still have poor, we do have people who are in, in need, but particularly our children. From biblical times onward, our children have always been among the most vulnerable in our society because they have no decision over what family they grow up in or what, uh, what their situation and life situation looks like. And our children become vulnerable. And the Bible's calling us to be a community that looks after and cares for children that gathers around one another and cares for children, a community whose heartbeat beats for children because God's heartbeat beats for children. In fact, the Bible is calling us to be agents of God in this world. The way that people come to know God is that they come to know the church. And so when they see us and they see the way we love children and we care for children, they should see God in us. In fact, some people are going to come into encounters with God through the church and the way the church gathers around the most vulnerable in our society. You see, the Bible teaches us that God has a purpose and a plan for every life. God doesn't overlook anybody's life. In fact, we read that West Stafford uh, quote several times in this series where it says, uh, I, think, I think we got it, yeah, children are too important and too intensely loved by God to be left behind or left up to chance, right? God loves them and God doesn't leave them up to chance and we can't leave them up to chance either. The Bible is calling us to be, um, man, in my prayer, I use the word fight. Um, it's calling us to fight 
for the lives of the most vulnerable in our society uh, to be um, aggressive in a good way uh, for the lives of the most vulnerable and not just our own children, right, but the children, all children in this world to love them. And so like at Tri-Cities Church, this is why we're thinking through things like adopting schools. This is why we're thinking through things like partnering with Joshua's Closet. This is why we're thinking through things like uh, surrounding defects, case managers, and encouraging them as they do this work. This is why we're doing these things as a church. But more than that, God is calling us to go out and be salt and light in this world. Another um, uh, term that the Bible uses, it refers to us pointing to Jesus by the ways we live and interact in this world. And there's so many opportunities that we have before us every single day. It's almost like sometimes uh, in life we have these blinders on, like we get, um, we, we, we are blinded by the realities of um, having to go to work and having to pay the bills and having to care for my family and having to do this and just needing some downtime that we end up having these blinders on and we don't see the pain and the hardship and the hurting that exists in the world. And we don't see the way that God wants to make a difference through us. And the Bible's constantly challenging us, and particularly the scriptures we've been looking at in this series have been challenging us to take the blinders off, um, to become more fully aware, to become more fully aware of the hurting and the pain that exists even within our own community, to allow that pain to become our pain. That's what compassion means. To allow that pain to become our pain. Not to say, well, that's not my responsibility. I didn't give birth to that child. Uh, but to allow that pain to become our pain. The pain that families and children feel in our world. So that we as a community can become agents of God and see some of that pain and struggle healed in our community. And that's really what this series is all about. Now, this morning we're looking at uh, the story of Jesus in particular. But one of the things we see in the Bible, and Jesus' story is, is just kind of case in point, right? Uh, one of the things we see is that the Bible, uh, biblical authors often overlook or skip over the childhood, uh, uh, the, um, childhood experiences of our biblical heroes. So like you, you hear very little about Moses' childhood, although we looked at one short story. Uh, you hear very little about Noah's childhood, Abraham's childhood. You hear very little about Jeremiah or Isaiah or any of these people that become biblical heroes. We, we hear very little about the influences that were in their childhood. So we don't really get to know exactly what shaped and formed them to become the people that they are. And the same thing is true with Jesus, right? When we get into the story of Jesus, we see Jesus' birth. Then we get another glimpse into his childhood at three. This is actually that story, and we talked about this at Christmas, the story where the wise men come to visit Jesus, uh, where oftentimes we see the wise men, at least portrayed at Christmas, as coming to visit Jesus, baby Jesus in the manger. In fact, Jesus was probably toddler Jesus, and they gave him gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and remember, I think we talked about this at Christmas time uh, because this is me talking about like toys and stuff just being left all over the floor. I imagine Mary and Joseph were tripping over some gold that was given to Jesus, right? Because that's what toddlers do, right? This could be something of value. And, and, you know, they like boxes better than gold, right? They just throw that stuff on the floor. Uh, and so we get that one glimpse at Jesus 
where uh, the, the wise men come to visit him in, in his home, and they present to him these gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And then we get this story of Jesus at the age of 12. And so the Bible skips from his birth to, um, to 3 to 12, then to 30, and gives us very little about what his childhood influences were like. And it leaves me wondering, like, what role did his, did his mother and father play? Like, how did they parent? Right? What did, they, did, did they spank Jesus? Right? Um, did, they, did they send Jesus to time out? Like, uh, what, 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 kind of, what kind of interactive, what kind of relationship uh, did, did they have with Jesus? What were his friends like? Because y'all know when you were friends, you could be, man, when I was, man, I, even still, I, I feel myself being tugged in this way. With one friend, I'm one person. With another friend, I'm like feel tugged to be a diff, totally different person. And so our friends have that kind of influential power in our life, especially as kids, you have a friend that's up to no good, it is easy to be up to no good with them, right? That's why one of the most important things we can teach our kids is discipline. But So what were Jesus' childhood influences like? The Bible doesn't really let us know. In fact, after Jesus' um, death, and maybe even more than 100 years, I think most of these stories started popping up about Jesus' childhood and there's these kind of mythological stories that just, they just really aren't true. Uh, there's this book called The Infancy Gospel of Thomas, and it records some of these stories. And, and they're kind of crazy, but they're, kinda, they're a little entertaining. Um, one, in one of these stories, Jesus is hanging out with some of his friends, and, um, and, and he, he takes some clay, some dirt and, and, and some water, and makes some clay. And he shapes his bird out of clay, and then he just kind of breathes on it, and it goes flying away. And his friends are like, whoa, how'd you do that? Kind of story. That, those are the kind of stories I imagine Jesus doing. There's another story of one of his friends. They're probably playing on a rooftop somewhere, and, and the friend falls off the roof and dies. And Jesus comes over and heals him and raises him from, from the dead. Right? And, and these, these aren't true stories. These are just kind of made-up stories. There's another one where one of his friends has an ax, and he cuts his foot, and, and Jesus kind of comes over and, and heals his foot. Right? And, and that's the kind of friend I would want. Like, I, I would want to be friends with Jesus, like, if that's the way he rolled as a child. But, but, uh, but these stories just aren't true. In fact, the Bible doesn't tell us much about Jesus' childhood or his childhood influences. But in Luke chapter 2, there's the story when Jesus is 12. And in, in this story, Jesus' family has gone to the temple, to Jerusalem for Passover. Now, during Passover, everybody went to the temple. Like, if you were a Jew, you went to Jerusalem. And so there are estimates as, that say, and I know this is a wild and crazy number, um, but there are estimates that say, or a range of numbers, that some people say that as many as 200,000 people just kind of uh, filled Jerusalem. I, I've seen other estimates by historians uh, from not long after Jesus' day that say as many as 2 million flooded Jerusalem during Passover. What we do know is that Jews from all over came into Jerusalem every year for Passover, which was this week-long festival. And Jesus' family was no different. As a little Jewish boy, his family every year would take him to Jerusalem for Passover. And part of the Passover procedures, at least the process, was that they would sacrifice an animal. They would sacrifice a lamb. And so here's the scene, if you can imagine what this would have been like during biblical times, that these uh, hundreds of thousands of people at least are flooding into Jerusalem. There needs to be enough lambs in Jerusalem for all of these families to sacrifice. And so you can imagine the chaotic scene that happens during Passover, right? There are people everywhere that don't have map quests. They don't, oh, map quests. <laughs> they don't have GPSs on their phones. Boy, I just stepped back like 10 years. <laughs> they didn't... They didn't print off directions from their printer. 
I don't even have a printer anymore. <laughs> oh, boy. Um, they didn't have GPSs on their phones. Uh, they, 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 they didn't know where to go. And all these people are there, and all these animals are there, and everyone's trying to make some money. And so there's all these vendors that are there, and it's just this crazy chaotic scene as these thousands of people flood in Jerusalem for Passover. And, and they, they sacrifice the lamb, they eat the meal, they do their ritual practices, and then they head back home. And y- y'all know, like even when you go on vacation and you have to travel somewhere, in a nice air-conditioned car, by the way, and you stay in a nice air-conditioned hotel. Even when you're traveling back home after a vacation, sometimes you're going back exhausted. It feels like you're, you're just spent sometimes going back after a vacation, particularly when you go with kids. <laughs> just saying, just saying. I learned that lesson. Makes vacation uh, family entertainment time. Uh, you don't necessarily come back feeling well rested, if you know what I mean. Uh, and so here we have Jesus' family that came to Jerusalem for Passover, and they did all this, this, this running around and meeting with family and sitting and hanging out, and they're just exhausted as they head back, and they get a day's journey back into uh, going home, and they realize that Jesus wasn't with them. And they turn around quickly, and they begin searching for him. In fact, in Luke 2, I'll pick up uh, reading a little bit of this passage. In Luke chapter 2, verse um, 41, I'll pick up there. It says, Every year Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. After the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began to look for him among their relatives and friends. So they traveled together. So they began to, to look for him among the relatives. They were thinking maybe he's hanging out with Aunt Susie or Uncle Bob or Cousin Timmy or somebody. Like, he's hanging out with somebody. Surely our precious Jesus wouldn't do this to us. Is what they're, they're thinking. He was 12. They just didn't know. 12 is 12. I'm just going to say that. I'm going to throw that out there. Um, And when they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem. So they were already a day out. They turn around. They have a whole day coming back in. And then for three days, right, they looked for him. And it says, after three days, they found him in the temple court, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. Now, Jesus' parents had at least two options here, right? One, they could step back and be amazed at Jesus hanging out with some priests, right? And, like, him teaching the priests who, like, devoted their lives to this kind of thing. So on the one hand, they could uh, be impressed. On the other hand, uh, they could have taken their belt off. I mean, this is biblical time. Spare the riot, spoil the child. Uh, So there's there's two that are kind of going on there in that scripture, right? Uh, So they could have either been impressed and said, hey, this is is Jesus. He's doing his thing. Or they could have gone, hey, you don't do your thing. You're only 12 years old because he was there, and they don't know how he even survived those five days and what he's been up to. And so his family finds him there in the temple, and um, they're frantic. And Jesus has this classic response uh, to his parents. Uh, and I'm, I'm going to read it. And, and, and I just want to, I, I, I felt like I needed to acknowledge this. Um, well, well, let me read it in, in uh, the NIV version of the Bible, um, because that's what I'm reading from. In, in verse uh, 49, listen to what Jesus says. He says, why were you searching for me, he asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? 
Now, now, I don't know if you're like me and you grew up with the King James Version of the Bible. And that wasn't the way this version, that version read, right? In fact, the King James Version, or at least New King James Version, reads differently. I think we have it on the slides. In New King James, it says, He said to them, Why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business, right? In fact, there's books. I have a book back in my office that was written called about, it's called about my father's business. There's books that have been written for that. And theological scholars and biblical Bible translators have wrestled with how to translate this verse because it's written a little bit complicated for us. And this is one of those points where some of the translators of the Bible have disagreed and had a hard time understanding what this verse actually means. Um, Because if you look at what it literally says, this is what Jesus literally says in this verse. Um, He says, didn't you know, uh, did you not know that in my father's, that in the of my father, it is necessary for me to be, right? Did you not know that in the, you can even put a blank there, of my father, it is necessary for me to be? Now, this uh, is not so strange for the Greek language. Uh, So the Bible, the New Testament at least, was written in Greek. And in Greek, it was common for them to leave a noun out and just leave it to be left up to context. And so here, uh, the noun isn't supplied it, so it's just in the, the father, in the of my father. Let's throw that verse back up there. <laughs> in the of my father is necessary for me to be. Now, what, what Bible translators have wrestled with is what the, what should follow the the, right? Uh, and so the ones that say in my father's house, like the NIV, what they did was they fell with the um, that, that what is intended to be supplied there is the noun, which is the temple or God's house, because that's where Jesus is. So we're saying, well, Jesus is in, in God's house, so if he doesn't state the noun, well, surely he left that up to be interpreted by the fact that he's sitting in the temple. And, and so some of the translations have done that, and the NIV chose to do that. But if you look at the footnote, it says, about my father's business. Because that word in could be translated in or about. So it could be about the of my father, or it could be in the of my father. And so the King James Version and several other translations have chosen to say, because if you look at this specifically in the Greek, and I know this is kind of getting into the weeds, but I want you guys to journey with me in this. Um, But if you look at this in the Greek, and Greek language is set up a lot different than ours, uh, in that the article, which is the word the in Greek, uh, can be singular or plural. So it kind of gives you a hint to the kind of word that comes after the article. And so here, the article, the word the is plural. And so if you were to fill in house, it should say that in my father's houses, right? Then you know that, I, that, that it's necessary for me to be in the houses of my father, right? It should say something like that and not uh, in the house of my father. Are you following me? If so, go. Uh, uh, uh. All right, so, that, so, so, so that's where translators have kind of uh, kind of uh, disagreed, right? Because the the is pointing to something that's plural. And so they're going, well, what is Jesus doing? And they're saying, well, he's about, he's, he's about his father's business, right? He's doing the works of God. He's tending to the affairs of God. You see, the sentence construction here actually implies, or at least it suggests that God is, that Jesus is saying that he has to be in pursuit of the things of God, more than one thing, not just in a house, right? But about the things 
of God. And so what I believe Jesus is saying here is not so much a particular location that he's pointing at. He's not saying that I must be in the house of God right now at this very moment. Mom, I know I was supposed to be with you in the caravan with the family. He's not saying, Mom, I know that I was supposed to be riding with y'all back home, and and I know you were looking for me. But, yeah, I I really had an appointment here with the, the priest, right? That's not what he's saying, right? He's not pointing to a particular location. But I believe what Jesus is doing is what the King James Version does, and I think it has it right, is saying that, that um, Jesus is saying that I, I, I'm not really referring to a particular place, but there's this uh, pervasive sense of purpose that Jesus found himself called to. You see, in this verse, he's not pointing to a particular place, but rather this pervasive sense of purpose, this fact that God has called me not to the temple to sit here, because that's not what we found Jesus doing in his life, right? He didn't just sit in the temple from that point forward, but he pursued God's will. If if you will, what we see here at age of 12, and I believe why the Bible gives us a glimpse into this verse, is it's saying there was this moment at 12 where Jesus had this... um, awakening, if you will, right? This awakening moment where he realized that his life was to be given to the will of God, and he had this pervasive sense of purpose, right? That I'm to be pursuing the will of God no matter where I am. If my family goes to Jerusalem for Passover, the will of God right there. When my family goes home, the will of God there. When I'm out with my friends, the will of God there. You see, Jesus, I believe from this point forward, at the age of 12 forward, was constantly asking that question, what has God appointed me to do here? He's asking that question over and over again. Now, his parents are probably tempted to go, all right, you know, y'all know how 12-year-olds do. Um, They'll ask the same question, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Well, they'll ask the same question over and over again. But Jesus wasn't just being an ordinary 12-year-old asking this question, but he was doing what I believe God has called all of us to do, is to be living our lives with that question, this pervasive sense of purpose that causes us to ask the question, what has God appointed me to do here in this space? So when we come into the church, what has God appointed me to be do here? How can I be God's representative here? How can I be an agent of Jesus here? When I go home and I'm in my neighborhood, how can I be God's representative here? What has God appointed me to do here when I'm in my house? What has God appointed me to do here when I'm at my workplace? What has God appointed me to do here? What Jesus understood is something that's very crucial for us to understand is that God has a plan and a purpose not just for his life, but for all of our lives, no matter where we are and no matter where we go. And that God's plan and God's purpose is not siloed or put in categories, that there's God's work here but not here for me, that there's God's work when I'm, you know, when I'm, when I'm giving my time or attention to that, through some ministry or activity that's a part of my church, but then not when I'm, when I'm, when I'm not doing that, right? Um, but that rather God's work, um, it, it filters through all of life because no matter where we are, God was there before we got there and God has work for us to do there. In fact, God has already started doing his work there. And he's just calling us to join him. And so sometimes we feel the pressure of, like, if I, man, I, I don't quite know what to say in this situation. 
or, or how to be God's representative here. I don't, I don't know what the right thing uh, spiritually to do here is in this situation. And, and the Bible's calling us to a piece of knowing God was there in that situation before we arrived there, before we were even aware of it. That God was already at work, and he's just calling us to enter it in a way that we're asking the question, what has God appointed me to do here? Where we're fully open to God doing his work in us and through us in whatever space we find ourselves in. You see, this is what Jesus understood when he says that I must be about my father's business, right? That my father has work to do, and I am simply doing the work of God. Now, the thing I love about this scripture is not only is 12-year-old Jesus teaching us what question to ask, but he also is, to some degree, instructing his mother on how to raise him, his parents on how to raise him. He's saying, Mom, this is, this is how I'm, I am to grow up. From this day forward, I am to be pursuing the things of God. And I, like, I think Jesus gets away with this. Um, our kids should not, should not teach us and tell us what to do. Uh, so this is not like a model for us, like where your kids teach us and tell us what to do. I just want to throw that out there. Uh, I heard something the other day on free-range parenting. Uh, I heard of free-range chickens. I had, I'd never heard of free-range parenting, but where kids are just, you know, do their own thing. Uh, and I don't, I don't think it's supposed to play out like that. Uh, and I don't think our kids are supposed to teach us or tell us what to do. But, but I, I think what Jesus is showing us is he's teaching not just his parents, but he's teaching all of us what it looks like for us to be parents, what it looks like for us to be mentors, what it looks like for us to be teachers, what it looks like for us to invest and be involved in the life of a child, that's that we are to help direct them to this sense of purpose, this plan and purpose that God had for their life from before they were ever born. This idea that God has a plan for their life and he placed adults in their life so that we could be the one who directs them to the purpose and plan of God for them in this world. That they'll be able to see that God has something bigger for them and that they'll pursue God's plans which are bigger and better than our plans. You see, I think from this point forward, Mary made that her goal. She made it her goal to direct Jesus in the way of the Lord, to place parameters and guardrails around Jesus so that he could be guided to pursue the things of God in this world. And the Bible's calling us to be those people in our world who become those guides and those um, guardrails and those boundaries around kids to ensure that they begin pursuing the things of God, to ensure that they're set on the right track. You know, there's this um, scripture here at the end of this passage, and if you look at what it, what it says about um, Jesus, um, 
in verse 52 of Luke chapter 2. It says, And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. You see, after Mary understood this, and she began to raise Jesus in the way that God created him to be raised and to direct him in the way that God created him to be directed. Jesus grew in wisdom. He grew in stature. He got bigger. Um, but he grew in favor with God and man. In fact, God began to open doors for him that, so that he could walk into God's plan and God's purpose for his life. You know, last week we looked at the story of Hannah and when Hannah had a baby boy, she named him Samuel. And the Bible says something very similar about Samuel in, uh, in the book of 1 Samuel. In fact, if we look there, I think we have it on the slides. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 26, look at what it says about Samuel. It said, it, that's not what it says. Let's just turn there, why don't we? And so in the book of 1 Samuel, chapter, um, two, chapter 2, let's see if it's actually verse 26. All right. It says, and the boy Samuel continued to grow in stature and in favor with the Lord and with people. You see, last week we saw that Hannah gave her boy Samuel back to the Lord. And when she did this, that he grew in favor with God and the people around him. And the Bible is showing us that Mary did the same thing with Jesus. And he grew uh, in stature, in favor with the people around him. And the Bible is telling us that if there's some way that we invest in the lives of children, that they will do the same thing because that's the way the Lord works. They will grow in wisdom and stature in favor with God and people as they pursue the way and the things of God. You know, this, um, this series has been challenging me, and I think I talked about this the first or second week in this series, is that, um, you know, there's this, this, this mentality that just is kind of natural in us, um, to silo our lives and to close off our lives and to put these blinders on um, to needs that exist all around us. And sometimes we see, um, we see the things that frustrate us as frustrations, and we don't see them as opportunities for us to step in and do something, to be God's representatives in those situations. And from the very beginning of this series, I began feeling the weight of this one um, because there's even right in my neighborhood, uh, there are boys that run the street and they run the street to late hours. And um, oftentimes I feel like they're up to no good. And there are times that I find myself peeking out the blinds, wondering if someone's going to come and snatch that kid up and take him back home. Because it's time for him to be in and the street lights are on and he has no business still roaming the street. There's times for me that that becomes a frustration as I see them doing thing and in things and engaging in things that kids their age shouldn't. And just in full transparency, it never, it never really occurred to me that I should be the one to step in. 
and, and not step in to snatch someone's kid up or not step in to say, hey, kid, do you want to come to my house? I want to tell you about Jesus. That's not a good approach. Um, but to step in and begin teaching this kid about Jesus by first building a relationship with the family. To live missionally in my neighborhood. Not to turn off the ministry side of me when I get home. Because I found myself doing the very thing that I'm preaching not to do is that I get home and I'm like, yeah, this is my home. This is my space. This is my personal space. This is where I find rest and comfort. And I shouldn't have to. It's not my responsibility to. But in Christ, we gain new responsibility as we become agents of God. And I began to feel the weight of this, that it's my responsibility to begin building relationships with that boy's parents. To begin encouraging them and seeing what needs they have as our relationship grows. To begin meeting the needs that they have to earn their trust. To begin speaking into this boy's life so that his life could be set on the right track. And not me just going, oh, this is frustrating. Oh, I shouldn't have to deal with this. Oh, I wish he would go home before the streetlights came on. But rather there's an, oh, I could step in and I could change the course of this child's life where they don't just reach their own potential that they feel like they have, but they can reach their God-given potential. And this series, these passages are challenging us to step in, to step up, to be the church in places where we don't feel like it's our responsibility, to do so wisely and carefully, prayerfully, because we can make a difference in a kid's life. And making a difference in a kid's life, as we saw the first week, has a longer, more lasting impact than making a difference in the life of an adult because they still have their whole lives ahead of them. This is one of the greatest ways we can make a difference in our world. You know, as we, um, man, as we come to a communion as we do every Sunday at the, um, during this part of our service, I, I'm reminded of Jesus, and I'm reminded of just how closely his mother walked with him, and that even in the difficult moments of his life, in kind of these pivotal and transitional moments in his life, she was right there by his side that she was being a guide or a guardrail, a boundary to make sure that he was pursuing the will and plan of God for his life to ensure that he was walking into his purpose in God. And I love this because even when Jesus is on the cross and he's giving his life for us and for our sins, his mother is right there. And I imagine him and this isn't one of the words that he says from the cross. And, and maybe the pain, maybe the pain was too great for him to even think this way. But I imagine the thought crossed his mind. Thank you, mom. Not thank you because your love got me here. But because he knew what, what was resting on the other side of the grave. 
That's the resurrection and life for all people who would ever believe. And he's saying, thank you, Mom, on behalf of the world because of the way you raised me, because of the way you invested in my life. I'm here, and the rest of the world no longer has to be here because I'm doing this for them that they may have full life. So as we come to these tables, I think more than anything, we're encouraged not knowing what result it will have, but encouraged to step in on behalf of the most vulnerable in our society, knowing that God has a purpose and a plan for them. Amen. Let's pray. God, we do give you thanks this morning that you give us this opportunity to gather in this space to sing songs of worship and praise to you, but ultimately to surrender ourselves to you and to say you know better than we do. Your plan is better than our plan. Your purpose is greater than our purpose. God, please help us to step into the lives of children, to invest in their lives that they might fully discover their purpose in you. It's in your son Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.